A, B, C, D, E, F, G, H, I, J, K, L, M, N, O, P, Q, R, S, and T, U, V, W, and X, Y, Z. Um, well, do we have an intro yet? Like at all? I sang the uh, alphabet all the way through. Oh, that's true. <laughs> Why? <laughs> it's, Why? Come, it's come to the point where the, the intros don't have to have anything to do with what we talk about. They just have to be a silly yeah. song. Hey, Stan. Hey, Marshall. Hi. What's up? How you doing? I'm just wondering if you've had any special thoughts or ideas or things that have come to your mind that have been revolutionary or emotional <laughs> or life-changing. You know, you know what I'm talking. What's the word I'm looking for? Um, an epiphany. Yeah. Have, oh. have you had any epiphanies in the last couple of weeks? Oh man, in the last couple of weeks, uh, I don't, I don't think so. Hey, but, maybe that was too abrupt. Yeah, that was a very quick segue into our episode today about epiphanies. <laughs> epiphanies, can you spell it? Uh, E-P-I-P-H-I-N-I-E-S. When it's plural. Or, when it's, well, when it's, a, it's, a, yeah. it's a Y when yeah, it's not Yeah, very plural. good. Very good. Okay, uh, I was just I testing up. you to see if all you are is an artist. If all I am is an artist? Yeah, some really great artists can't spell. And you know, <laughs> we may have talked about this before. Some really, really good writers don't spell well. Well. Did you know that? I'm sure that those people exist. Did you know that some really good artists have very poor draft draftsman skills, drafting skills? Yes, yes, I did know that. <laughs> but there's a reason, I think, why it's common. And okay. I saw it because I worked with an advertising guy who was just a great copywriter, really clever, uh -huh. and also a man who made a fortune as a commercial writer for TV and, and, uh, and novels. And mm -hmm. it's because they are not thinking about the small parts. They don't care. That word can be corrected later. They care about where they're going with the thought, what the whole big macro thing is. That's where their genius is. And then if they've got someone else who can take care of uh, fixing the small parts, they did a really great big design. Yeah. I actually just yesterday I was talking to uh, a, a web designer about that. Um, how, you know, we're I'm, I have another project going on, but it doesn't matter. It, so, and we're in the really early stages of it. We're just trying to find the brand and um, just the feel of the whole thing. And he's getting really, for every idea that he comes up with, he's going really detailed into it and like trying to fix everything. And I'm like, let's not spend so much time on each idea, but try 20 ideas. And just see where it goes so that we, you know, we can try more ideas because this is kind of, you know, this is the blue sky phase. You need to just keep moving, keep moving, keep, keep trying and uh, not get to not fall in love with any one thing. Well, here we are and we're going to talk about epiphanies. I'm yes. two sips in here. Two sips? Oh, I'm behind by, oh, now you're three sips in. Hold on. Three big sips. Yeah. 
Oh, you're doing pure clean water, huh? I'm four gulps in. Hmm. Okay. <laughs> anyway, yeah, today we're talking about epiphanies. Oh, and by the way, before we get on epiphanies, the next time people see us, we're going to be together. It's going to be the real thing. <laughs> the real thing. Yeah. We're <laughs> Oh, yeah. like real thing for us, not for, right, for yeah, right. yeah, 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 yeah. But it'll it'll feel different. Yeah, well, yeah. We I think we've done more episodes remotely now. Yeah, yeah, I think we have. Yeah, because we only did one full season, season one, and then seven or eight episodes. Eight then episodes. we did the rest of season two, and how far into season three are we? <laughs> oh, <laughs> like, we're twenty some episodes in. Yeah, yeah. So we're we're beyond half half of our episodes being remote through Zoom. Stan, I want to tell you, it's been great hosting the podcast with you remotely. It, you know, it's still a, a Zoom call. It's still a Zoom call. And we'll have Charlie there and we'll have the crew there and it'll be the real thing. Yeah, so I'm excited. But anyway, epiphanies. Epiphanies. I, so, I've been brainstorming a list of epiphanies for the past, I don't know, a week or so that we've been talking about it. Yeah. Um, I have a bunch. How, how many do you have? I have too many, but here's, yeah. here's the thing. <laughs> I, have uh, I have all sorts of details and things, you know, defining epiphany and how many you have in a day or in a life. And then I yeah. recognized that I've got all sorts of details, but I don't have any big structure for this conversation, which years ago, that was one of my greatest epiphanies is that always have the big structure, not the small stuff. And now I'm working in exactly the opposite way. So, I don't know. Maybe maybe we should talk about what we want to talk about first. Should we start by defining what we mean by an epiphany? Because it, it, I, I, if, if an epiphany is an idea that comes suddenly like a revelation, then I, I can have many a day if they're just ideas. I had an idea yesterday that you should, I should always label my USB and electrical cords with tape on <laughs> okay. both sides. I should have learned that years ago, but boy, that's a big one. But I don't know that that really counts as an epiphany. I tended to go more towards just realizations. <laughs> like when something happened and I realized something is true. And it could be, you know, usually it was a big something, a big event that made me realize something. Um, it's hard to remember the little epiphanies, you know? Right, because there's so many of them. <laughs> it, yeah, you have them all the time. But while brainstorming this, I was trying to come up with art-related epiphanies, right? Yeah. I mean, th well, obviously, this is what I wanted to focus on. But, like, I realized that I, I couldn't remember that many. Because they were all so subtle and it was like every time I went to class at, at Watts, I, I had epiphanies. Every time yeah. someone did a demonstration, I would learn something. There'd be a little piece of information I realized something is true. But it was so subtle, it didn't really stick. And, and I just have a, this chain of thousands of little epiphanies and none of them really pop out as like, oh yeah, that one big thing when everything came together and I realized how to shade. It's like, no, I never had a, a, an epiphany on how to shade. I understand. I, I don't have that many art educational epiphanies, but I do have a lot of like career and life and all that epiphanies on Okay, that. well, let's, let's save some of the bigger ones because this was one of the first things I saw. Yeah. Is that being a student is a series of probably hundreds of epiphanies. 
of, of small epiphanies. Oh, oh, yeah. So that's how you do it. Oh, that makes sense now. That was just uh, spread out over years. And I found that I often had them in auditoriums or in classrooms sitting and listening, uh, but also many, many from books as well that were uh, smaller ones. Uh, I think though, to respect the word epiphany, mm -hmm. that there, there's at least three things I can think of. It, it's, it's, it has things in common with ideas in that it's sudden, sudden revelation or insight where there's a parting of the clouds, it's a moment of truth, it's a, it's a breakthrough, it's what people call an aha moment. Yeah. But to be a real capital E epiphany, I think it's, it's usually a major shift in consciousness and that it's accompanied by emotion. In fact, it might even be soaked in emotion. Some epiphanies are soaked in emotion. And uh, also, ideally, followed by some kind of change. Even if it's a change in an attitude or tolerance or how to consider a relationship, that it is not just, oh, it makes sense, and then you forget about it. Now, it has steered your, our, our lives somehow differently. So, there are big things that come to us, whether we sought them or not. But I think that's part of what we should talk about is what happens when you're seeking epiphanies uh, and then not finding them and other ones that are just given to you. But anyway, those are my thoughts about it. Big deal with feeling and creates change might be a way to measure whether it's a capital E epiphany. <laughs> Wait, capital E epiphany, isn't that religious? Yes, it is. It's originally religious. It's the yeah. revealing of Christ to the disciples uh -huh. as, as Christ, yeah. So, it has a religious origin, but it's from a Greek term, later uh, a Latin term, that can just mean suddenly it all, it all makes sense. It's a revelation. Right. Okay. And why are we talking about this? <laughs> because we've got a hundred little insights yeah. that don't really count as the big ones. I mm. think there is value. You want to talk about the little ones? Because I made a list of big ones. <laughs> oh, yeah, yeah. If you've got a list of big ones, start with those. Okay. okay. Start with those. There is also a question somebody asked us during our last, uh, what was it, the live stream we did where people actually got to talk to us. Yeah. And somebody asked us, like, when did it, everything just click and everything made sense. That's right. I was like, what, there, there's never a moment where everything makes sense, right? That. At least I, I've never had a moment where all of a sudden everything makes sense. But there's moments when a significant amount of things make sense or some one little important thing all of a sudden makes sense. But I'm, I'm interested in the subject. I think that the subject can be encouraging because it focuses on, on typically positive experiences or experiences out of which true. positive things. So there's a dark side to epiphanies. The dark side is that you have, oh, I've been revealed a truth and it's a truth that creates damage or isn't really a truth at all. It just seemed hmm. so emotional to me that I bought it as a truth. Ah, false epiphany. Yeah, a false epiphany. I mean, the, the world is full of that kind of thing. So, there is a dark side to it that we should probably mention, but hmm. we're trying to look at the ones that really in retrospect made some kind of positive difference in our lives. Well, that's an interesting concept. Like, like, we don't really know when we have a false epiphany 
until much later when we have a new epiphany that proves the previous one false. <laughs> yeah, right. Maybe we shouldn't go down that path. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Or that's, we never really know. Another, yeah, that's another topic. Okay. There's different categories of epiphanies that I was trying to brainstorm. Okay. Um, personal, parental, artistic, relationships, and learning. Well, personal epiphanies. I'm going to let me go over some quickly because some of them I've already mentioned. Uh, one of them was uh, that that I mentioned it in our first season that mm. that Body World show mm. that had those those people the, the family where it was just their vascular system. It was just so emotional to think about how mm. fragile a human being is. That was one. Oh, another one was that Kate Kalwitz self-portrait that I saw at LA County Museum of Art, where she almost spoke out of that drawing. Uh, and the thing she had to say was, you're going to die. And it wasn't an artistic epiphany. It was entirely personal. And I don't know that it changed me because that was 30 years ago. And I'm, you know, the, the, the truth still stands in future tense. Uh, so uh, there's there's been many little ones like that of just awareness of things about life. But yeah. the, the main ones, uh, oh, one more I'll say, one more personally, okay. which I've also mentioned, is that friends of mine and I used to go out to the desert for a day up to several days to fast in the San Gorgonio wilderness where it really is out there in the desert. It's not a campground. It is truly wild. And there were things that came from that. One was just sitting on a hill and looking out over miles and miles and miles, countless miles of mountains and desert. I don't even know which direction I was looking at on the map, but just aware of how big the world was and looking at the night sky out in the desert, unimpeded. Uh, those were, were big moments. And out of, after one of those, where I was actually going out into the desert to seek what discipline meant. And without consci being consciously aware of it, when I came back, I started keeping a journal. I was 22 years old and I started keeping a journal every day. And it wasn't like I got a revelation in the desert. It was that after being in the desert and thinking about discipline, it just came to the point where I felt like I needed to start doing this. So it was hmm. sort of hazy while it was happening, but in retrospect, it was a major change, even if it was not that emotional and even if it was not that sudden. Yeah. Those are those are the, the the personal ones that I'll mention now. There's a bunch that I've already mentioned throughout the past, you know, what, three seasons. Um, yeah. You know, like realizing that I hate office jobs when I had that internship. Like yeah. that was um, that was a big one for me that made a big change in my my life. Um, the the realization of how much time we waste every day, uh, like you know, just getting a better, a clearer picture of how many hours there are in a week, and how we do things on a regular basis that add up to giant amounts of time. Yeah. You know what I mean? And, and I that do. came from, I also told about the story where my mentor made me keep track of every 15 minutes of my day for two weeks and then categorize everything and then just see like, oh my God, there's these, these big chunks of time that are spread out to little pieces, but they, they add up to like a full day. Yeah. <laughs> In the two weeks, it's like a full 24 hours that I'm spending doing this one thing that is like, 
do I really want to like look back when I'm 65 and think, wow, I spent 10 years doing this thing <laughs> or five years doing this thing. It's like I'd rather use those five years on something else. Um, but just, just realizing how time is made up into this and how we have control of time and that, you know, we all have the same amount of time but some people just use it better, use it for things that mean more to them and some people fall into patterns too much and into habits that are maybe easy to do. And, and actually, not some people, all people, everybody. All of us do, All yeah. of us do that, not some people. Everybody has habits that they just fall into and it's about, like we just said, discipline to be able to uh, do the things that you really want to do or enjoy doing more. Yeah. yeah. Versus the things that are easier to do. So yeah, that one. That, I already talked about that one, but that was a huge one for me. Yeah, and sometimes those those uh, those time suck patterns are out of necessity. Yeah, sometimes we need to recover. I, I do remember you saying that, and that was a big deal, and it really obviously made a change in your life. Mm -hmm. You are you seem as aware of any as anybody I know in how you invest your your day-to-day -day schedule. I'm actually doing that again the next two weeks. I'm keeping track of every 15 minutes. Yeah, that's a, that's a valuable one. Right now, th this is week one of me doing that and so, because I just realized like there was something wrong with how, much, how I'm spending my time and I just need to analyze it so. Okay. It's good to do this occasionally. That's not so much a personal one as a professional one. I mean, that overlaps from personal to professional. Yeah. Oh, oh, yeah. No, that's actually not more professional. That's everything. That's everything, yeah. That's personal too. Like, I, I'm not saying that, you know, that you need to maximize the time you spent on, on working. I'm saying you need to prioritize how you want to spend your time and then analyze how you actually spend your time and see if it's what you want. If you want more time with your kids than, than with social media, we'll see, like, what do you actually do? Are you spending more time on Instagram than you spend with your kids? <laughs> like, that would be a weird thing. That's not a professional thing at all. That's just, yeah. you know, anyway, it, right. it, 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 that is that's a, just a time uh, revelation, not a professional thing. But That anyway. is a time and life yes. revelation. Yeah. Let's move toward professional. Okay. Because I, I can Im imagine some audience... Uh, members uh, listening to this and saying, okay, I came here for art. Yeah. <laughs> I came here for okay, drawing. Okay, well, most of mine are career related. Okay. I have one that's just like purely art. But anyway, it was the moment where I realized I, I, I fell in love with drawing. Yeah. And I remember the moment and I, I think I also told this story recently. But it's, there was one day I was home with, I don't know who, I was very young. I was like eight maybe. And, uh, there was like a gridded sketchbook that I found or somebody maybe gave it to me. It wasn't even a sketchbook. It was just like a gridded notepad, right? Mm -hmm. And I just started drawing things around me. I don't know what caused me to start drawing things around me, but I would just sit down and I would spend an hour just looking at an object and trying to be as accurate as possible with it. And I was very young. Nobody told me to do this, but it was really fun and I got addicted to it and I spent the next several weeks just doing that with a bunch of household items. Yeah. And I just fell in love with it because I got such great results. Um, and I remember that the gridded paper helped me with this because the grid, it was those little, it was, um, 
you, you know, it was like like uh, algebra or geometry notebooks where they the lines are all like. Yeah, I know them. They're like a few millimeters apart. Yeah. There's a little squares everywhere. And so, it forced me to think about each square. And I was like, wait a minute. The placement of the handle on this teacup has to be five squares wide versus the teacup, which is maybe 12 or 13. Right, And I was actually starting to think about spatial relationships of the object I'm drawing. Whereas, if it was just an open white piece of paper, it was just, I wasn't thinking about the spatial relationship. Yeah. The measurements didn't, weren't obvious to me. That's exciting. Yeah. And it was just the gridded paper that caused me to have this epiphany that like, oh, you can make things look like they look in real life. That's like the <laughs> discovery of an instrument. I have a nephew who, when he picked up a camera when he was young, even if, uh, from the outside watching him hold a camera, there's something about this guy that looks like he was meant to be born in this century so that he can pick up a camera. And he had an eye for photography, had an eye for lifting things up and going around things. And it's, what would you do if, if it was before camera uh, that, that you were, this got him excited about photography and a different energy than a person who has the same feeling about a stage, that they want to be on a stage and move around and act in a theater, not in front of a camera. It's you, you found a medium you loved. I had that happen too when I was in middle school. I fell in love with drawing and it was a sudden thing that happened at a particular evening in my dad's studio that I thought, I want to do this for the rest of my life. That's What was that particular thing? I was drawing a picture of a, of a friend in junior high and I made it look like him. <laughs> cool. Okay. Keep going. There's one I had when I was really young. This, was, this is a career one where uh, I realized that I could make money. <laughs> I, could earn, I could do things to earn money. <laughs> and it was uh, my brother liked to squeeze my cheeks because I was, I was really young. I was like five or six <laughs> and I had big cheeks and, was, and he would just come and just squeeze my cheeks and run away and I would get mad at him and then eventually I was like, you know what? You're going to have to pay me a, a dime or a penny or a nickel, whatever it was, every time you touch my cheeks and he's like, okay, deal. <laughs> and so, then he would, he'd be like, all right. And then he'd squeeze my cheeks and I'd keep tabs and be like, all right, you owe me like a dollar now. And then he'd be like, okay, here's a dollar. And then we were both happy. And I was like, oh, okay. The young negotiator. And then eventually, I actually, I just got tired. I was like, ah, I just don't want him touching my cheeks anymore. So, I was like, okay, it's going to cost you a quarter now. I'm raising the price. Wow. <laughs> and then he stopped touching my cheeks. <laughs> yeah, it was no longer worth it to him. Huh? Yeah, it wasn't worth it for him anymore. Yeah. It was too, pri too, too pricey. Yeah, that's the revelation to an outsider. The, their revelation is that this is a young entrepreneur. Yeah. To, to you, it was, hey, I could, I could make use of this. I could make money this way. <laughs> yeah. I don't even know what I was spending the money on at the time. I was like five or six. I wasn't going to the grocery store or I wasn't going to the toy store on my own. Here you are, an, an entrepreneur and a, a person who takes risks and the revelation of you to your parents and sibling and surrounding people. I have one more actually about art and this was like just um, when I realized that art is a a real option for me as a career. Mm -hmm. 
it was right after Arts Week. I think I, I've talked about Arts Week a few times, but it was when basically uh, every senior in high school can, it's this big competition for all high school seniors for art and it's all forms of art, drawing, uh, um, film, dance, music, um, all forms of art and they select a handful from each category and a few hundred uh, artists go to Miami for Arts Week and they all participate in this one event and they all share their art together. Like everybody goes out and watches the dancers perform and then the theater people, people perform and then everybody goes to a, uh, an art exhibit with everybody's paintings from the, you know, the painting category and then everybody goes to watch the films from the film category. And it, it's like, it was a very big week for me. This is like, it kind of reinforced the idea that I am an artist because I won this award and I was able to go to this week with only a few hundred people. Um, and then I remember coming back because this was during high school. I remember coming back and walking back into my high school like, like all proud. <laughs> like I did this and no one else from my high school did this thing and just feeling like, huh. Like, this is real. Like, this is who I am now. I'm an artist mm -hmm. and this is real. Like, this is an actual path forward from now on. Mm -hmm. it, um, it made it legitimate for me that whole, that entire week. But it didn't sink in until I was back home, away from all the excitement of that week and just like, oh, okay, that thing that just happened was real and it's really exciting. And you're a teenager at this time. Yeah, I think I was a high school senior, yeah. Yeah, yeah. So, it's an identity epiphany. This is who I am. This is a label yeah. that I, I will take on. Oh, yeah. yeah what a, that's a big deal. Yeah, it made a hobby into a, a future, like a career path. Um, and I knew I wanted to, but this really solidified it and made it like, oh, these people, because there were a lot of people there at that week that were, you know, famous artists um really successful people that were there mentoring us during that whole week and just talking to us and telling us all sorts of stuff but actually I, that week was so big in my life actually i had another epiphany tell tell me during that week and this was a more kind of another personal one um but it was figuring out that silliness was like part of my brand like that oh i'm silly <laughs> and uh -huh. it's good um uh, cuz most people in high school knew me as like the, sh the nerdy shy kid. Like I, uh -huh. I was not like the silly kid except the people that I was close to. Like they knew it. And once I get comfortable, I can get kind of silly. But most people didn't know that I was like that. They you know, just a nerdy shy kid. And um, so, at that, during that week, the arts week, um, the, the people in charge put together a little informal talent show. It was just like. It was after one of the events, um, everybody came back to the hotel and we went to like one of these, one of the big meeting rooms and there were a bunch of chairs and everybody sat down and like, all right, everybody just like go up to the front and present your talent. And I was like, what the hell? My talent is like drawing and painting. What am I going to do up there? And so, I just like came up with this really weird thing that I make, uh, I can make a funny sound. <laughs> like I went up there and it was like okay I'm, I, I, I don't know what else to do and so I just like 
started talking about the sound I make and I started like, uh, I took my time. I, I kind of built up the tension and talked about it and said like, this is, you know, I can make this really funny sound. It's kind of a combination between a, a dolphin and a chipmunk. Um, and everybody's just like, what the hell is he talking about? What is this? And then I did the sound and everybody just exploded. The whole room just exploded with laughter. And I was like, what? <laughs> what was that? And this was all improv. It was kind of. I mean, I knew the sound I was going to make. Okay. But it was, I mean, I didn't have like any kind of stand-up history or anything. But, I, but was, the build-up of tension. Yeah. And all the setup where you were just responding to the moment emotionally. Yeah. I was just like, okay, I need to make this somehow exciting. So, I like told a story about it and like mm -hmm. built it up and because I knew if I just went up there and did the sound, it'd be really stupid. <laughs> so, I even like turned around and did like a breathing exercise. Like, I got to warm up to this, you guys. <laughs> and, then, and then I did the sound and I was like, what? And everybody loved it and then like everybody came up to me at the, after that and was like, do the sound, do the sound. And I was like, oh, this is fun. Being silly is cool. You learned timing yeah. by instinct and experience. Yeah. Wow. That's a kind of professional one. Yeah. You want to hear the sound? Sure. <laughs> Everybody's like, what's the freaking sound? I'm building up that, that yeah. anticipation again. I could have been a better audience for you, but now that we're here. <laughs> yeah. All right. Let me see if I could, I could still do it. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to get close to the mic. All right. Yeah. Build up that tension. <laughs> Can you hear that? It's really horrible. It's not even that impressive. <laughs> Does it make any sense? No, but I think what we should do here, if if it if it, it's it's a nice sound, Stan. But I it's think so what we should do here is just put in a fake sound. A fake sound? That's not good enough for you. It it, it was it, it might have been better in person. Oh, of course. The the excitement of the yeah. Anyway. It it wasn't even it was not funny then. the The whole point is that the silliness and the delivery was what made it funny. And yeah. it, it was I learned that lesson then. It was like people like silly. Okay, I I know that some people will object to this. What I want to hear some of the parental ones okay. just out of pure interest because parental epiphanies I think were the biggest ones in in my life. Or some yeah. of the biggest ones in my life, personally. Yeah, okay. So, uh, the one I remember, it was a moment where it was like three days after Cooper was born or four days, I don't remember. But, uh, and it was like the first time I had a uh, like a moment to myself because, cause, you know, like when, when someone's born, I don't know if it was different when, when your son was born, but... Flurry. Well, no, like you stay in the hospital for like three days. Yes, that yeah, too. Okay. But lots of phone calls and... Nah, well, not really. <laughs> okay, <laughs> no. that's, you, you did it better than I did. <laughs> okay. I mean, we didn't announce that like, hey. Yeah, anyway. Um, so, basically, you don't really get a moment to yourself until you leave the hospital and, you know, you got to go do something on your own. So, like, I had to go. We, we came home and, like, a few hours later, I had to go to the grocery store to pick something up. And driving back home, uh, it was like, huh. Okay, so my life isn't about me anymore. <laughs> like, there's now this new human that completely depends on me. 
completely trusts me whether he wants to or not <laughs> yeah, he has no yeah, choice yeah. and i it's my responsibility to make sure that this person's okay and so it was yeah it was like this realization that life is not just purely about yourself that's a huge realization of yeah parenthood what about you i had something similar when my son was a, not quite two or about two where he was asking for definitions of things and pointing to stuff in the living room. Is this wood? Yeah, that's wood. Is this not wood? No, that is wood. Then he pointed to something that wasn't wood. Is this wood? No. <laughs> is this not wood? That's right. That's not wood. And it went on for 20 or 30 minutes. I thought, Wait. how long will he go? I never stopped him because I wanted to see how long it would go before he wore himself out or wore me out. And he did it with everything, with plastic, with glass, <laughs> with, with everything he could do. And he was asking for definitions of terms as a very small Aristotelian. He understood enough to where if a thing is, can it not be? And huh. as I was watching this, it did occur to me how vulnerable he was. Yeah. It occurred to me that he is looking to me as the ultimate purveyor of truth about the world. And so that was a kind of epiphany in that, wow, everything that dad says is correct. So I just had an epiphany. I, so I didn't know that your son was Borat. I don't know. You don't know who Borat is? <laughs> I do know who Borat is, but I haven't seen the movie. Uh, oh, man. But does he talk that way? Well, there's a really, really funny. It's, it's like my favorite scene from the whole movie. Uh, he's going down the, the, the grocery store aisle and he's like, what is this? And the grocery the guy's like, is this cheese? He's like, what is this? That's cheese. Well, what is this? This is cheese. This is also cheese. And he just, you know, it's, it's the cheese aisle, yeah, right? Yeah, yeah. So, he goes down every single item and then, and then he gets to, he finally gets to the next section which I don't know what it is, like a hot dog or something. He's like, and is this cheese? <laughs> it's like finally he learns that like, oh, this is all cheese and, he, and then the next one is not cheese anymore. The world is divided into cheese <laughs> and not cheese. Yeah. I wonder whether he got that from watching a two-year-old. Maybe, maybe he did. But it's funny how the, the guy working there just goes with it. He's just like, this is cheese. Yeah. Yes, this is cheese. He's trying he, to be helpful. He does this for like several minutes. Yeah. He's yeah. being like a good dad. <laughs> He's being a good dad, right. You be patient with this guy. Go ahead. Continue with your story. Okay, I'll continue with my story. Uh, the thing I got out of that was how vulnerable he was, how much he trusted me. Mm-hmm. Six years or so later, he's about eight, and I carry pepper spray when I walk. It used to be because we lived in a, a dangerous neighborhood uh, oh, wow, okay. with dangerous people, and then moved to a safer neighborhood, but there's still the potential of dangerous animals, coyote packs, and that kind of thing. So, this is in Orange County? Yeah, yeah. I never used pepper spray. <laughs> okay. And I didn't even know how. Now, this is not going to end anything like what you think. The pepper spray never discharges. Ah, come on. <laughs> I'm sorry to disappoint you that it doesn't have a more climactic ending, but it's about mm -hmm. epiphanies. Okay. Uh, the pepper spray was beyond its expiration date. So, I tell my son, hey, this pepper spray is beyond its expiration date. I'm going to discharge it in the front yard. You want to see? He said, yeah. So, I, we go out to the front yard and I try to discharge it and it slips out of my hand 
And I look over at him and he goes, his whole body just turned to jelly. (laughs) He didn't quite fall down. But I realized that it just occurred to him that my dad, whom I admire so much, who can best all foes, if there had been bad guys after us or dangerous (laughs) animals, we would be dead right now. And it was an epiphany for him. How old was he? He was about eight, seven or eight. Okay. okay. But the the emotion that just overwhelmed him of what an idiot my dad <laughs> is, that was also for me an awareness of, of a dad moment. A dad epiphany is often about what a what a dimwit God has entrusted this child to. So that was one of those ones that the the fact that he is vul- he is vulnerable and he's got an idiot for a dad. He needs he needs more than you if he's ever going to become a balanced human being. Those mm. were those were pretty big moments in my life for print. I'm done talking about parental epiphanies. This was too I much. I don't know. You realize you're an idiot, but how many dads would actually discharge it after the expiration date? How many would even care to look at the expiration date? I mean, that's, that shows evidence that you actually care. I'm not as much of an idiot as yeah. I thought I was. Yeah. So, it turns into the, the whole- It was a false epiphany, Marshall. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah <laughs> One it was. of those. But it was probably good for me because yeah. all, all yeah. through those years, I was aware <laughs> that you cannot, you cannot do this job perfectly and you need more than yeah. you, way more than you. So, yeah, yeah that, that was a big deal to me. Okay, but that, those you, were personal epiphanies. You realize you have to work on your grip strength in your sweaty palms. Yeah, <laughs> and also not announce that this is going to be a big interesting thing when it isn't like I did with this story. Yeah. Well, did you try again? No. No. Wait, what? You didn't I, do it? I don't remember what happened. I think I, I, I may have tried again. And I don't even not. remember what happened. All I and then you gave it to that, him and like, you do it. Yeah, yeah, and you ran it, away and crying. at me because I deserve it. <laughs> I, all I remember is that there was such a sense of once that happened, I, I sort of blacked out any memory of what happened afterward. <laughs> okay. Let's move to another topic. Nice. Okay. And parental epiphanies are really epiphanies about life. They happen with people's pets too. And they happen if you're not a parent. If you're not a parent and you're in any kind of relationships, you're going to have epiphanies of what buttons not to push. Did you have any bad epiphanies? Like, we're not a bad, but like something bad happened. And you real, I mean, I guess that oh, was a yeah. bad one. Never, you just mentioned a bad one. <laughs> well, I've had bad epiphanies in recognizing you're trying too hard in this relationship. It would be better to end this. It would be better to not do this anymore. It'd be better to just un... Yeah, to to stop trying. Basic economics epiphany. Because you've so much invested in this that you must continue investing even if you're putting your investment into a sinking hole? Is that what you mean? No, the opposite of that is the... (laughs) It doesn't matter what you did before. It's all about, okay, from this point on, what is the better decision. Yeah, there's a name for that, right? Where it's... Sunk cost. I think that's what it is. I get it. You got any epiphanies like that that are negative ones? Well, there was a big one where I got scammed. Really? You want to tell us? Yeah, and I think I was like still in high school and I was trying to... This was actually like one of my first businesses that I, I never really mentioned because I, I only did it for a few months. 
Yeah. And then I got scammed. <laughs> so, yeah. it's like, oh, man, I hate that one. This but, is interesting. Yeah. So, in I think it was in high school, I would buy things in bulk on eBay. So, like, um, I bought, like, 20 uh, DVD players, right? Like, little mini DVD players that you can bring with you onto the airport or on the airplane. And it's got a little monitor. It's got like its own. It's like a tiny laptop, but all it does is plays DVDs. I know what you mean. Yeah. So, I bought 20 of those for really cheap because it was bulk. And then I sold each one for, uh, you know, a little bit more than what I paid for it. And I'd make profit. And uh -huh. I did that with a bunch of different things. And then one time, there was like a really good deal. I was like, holy crap. Like, I could get 300% returns on on these. Uh, I think they were computer chips for something. I don't remember what it was, like RAM sticks or processors, whatever. I don't know what it was, but they were really small. And so, it was like the shipping would be cheap and like there, weren't, there wouldn't be that much expenses. And I would get, you know, 30, 40 of them for 100, you know, 100 bucks each and I could sell them each for a thousand, right? I'm like, my God, I can make so much money. And he, the guy was like, all right, well, um, you got to send me the uh send me you know three thousand dollars um here's my western union account or whatever and have you ever sent something with western union no okay this was back in the day i don't know if they still do this but like you basically go there and you have to give them cash <sighs> and there's no like insurance policy you give them cash and they send money to whoever you say to send it to and once the money's gone that's it it's not your money anymore yeah. It doesn't matter if you got scammed. It was like, wow. it was one of those things. So, basically, I sent the money and I'd never heard back from the guy. And I was like, what is happening? I kept trying to contact him and obviously, he just wanted me to send him money. Yeah. And he never ended up, there, there were no processors or computer chips. Um, <sighs> and so, I lost like most of the profits I made from all the previous things I did and I was like, Okay, <laughs> business is hard. I learned a lot of things. Lesson. A yeah. lot of lessons. Business is hard. Don't trust everybody. Yeah. Right? Like the internet is full of people that don't care about you. They're just trying to, you know, make money. Stan, I got a question about it. Yeah. Did you, did you uh, consult with people around you before you did it? No. That's a lesson learned right there, right? That there's going to be, if there's two or three people who you trust, mm -hmm. who you mention it to, one of them is likely to say, this sounds like uh, it could be this and they speculate worst case scenarios. Yeah. Well, one of the lessons, I mean, this isn't on my list, but one of the lessons I learned bef before was to just try to do things independently because I had uh, a bigger risk tolerance and I was more creative than most other people around me. Mm -hmm. And whenever I would bring up a crazy idea like that, they, there would always be reasons why you shouldn't do it. Yeah. And so, it was never fun to share ideas like that with people. So, I would just do things on my own. I became independent in this kind of thing. Yeah. Um, which is good and bad. It but is. It it's ended good up being mostly good for me, but sometimes I ended up getting scammed. If all you lost in the long run was $3,000 to know that there really are people out there like that, think of how much better that is from having oh, yeah. lost much more. Yes. Oh, yeah. 
oh, wow, that is, and that's a lesson that's learned. That's a lesson that's learned emotionally. Oh, yeah, man, I felt so bad. That's a lot of money for a high school student. Yeah. (laughs) It was like everything I had. Your experience, though, even putting it on this podcast, uh, acts as something that someone else can might be in the midst of something that they got that same inclination and they recognize, hey, I've just had a podcast that gave me some wisdom that I ought to consider that scammers really do exist. I, I don't remember if I told anyone after it happened. I think I was just like, shoot. And then the, by the next day, I was like, all right. Start again. On the next thing. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Let's try again. I wondered whether being raised in a secure environment where the people around you are trustworthy can lead to vulnerability like that. Whereas a person who's in, raised in an environment where there is a lot of that kind of thing going on always has their hackles up. Mm-hmm. Uh, but it's where I know that I'm getting off the subject. Let's get back. To, yeah. We're talking about negative epiphanies. That was an interesting one. Let's go to you next and then I'll do, I'll do the next one. We'll just bounce off each other. Now, you know, what I want to do next with mine is, is talk about the, the conscious seeking of epiphanies versus the ones that happen without us seeking mm. them. Well, what does that mean? Because I like, let's, for, the, for example, the art week thing. Mm-hmm. Um, that happened because I applied for the contest. Yeah. I, I tried to get into that and then mm-hmm. it happened and I won and, and then I had, an epif- I had this whole week that was a bunch of revelation, revelations. Mm-hmm. <laughs> like I was seeking something, right? I was seeking personal growth yeah. in one way. But are you talking about specifically that I want to figure out that silliness is part of my brand? Yeah, yeah, and and you weren't you were not doing that. No, I wasn't. It just happened. But how can you have that kind of epiphany? I mean, isn't oh. an epiphany about like you realize something that you didn't know before? So how can you know about it before you have the epiphany about it? This is a big division in kinds of epiphanies. That's okay, important. I tell think. Tell me. Uh, I think those personal ones I mentioned uh, about parenthood were I, they were not things I was seeking. They were saying things that were suddenly breaking through and saying, notice this. Uh, it happened in, in the, uh, the late 90s when I had the student who was studying the Myers-Briggs for her uh, graduate work, that when she sat down and talked with me about it for about an hour or so, I was not seeking that information, but I, I, the words came out of my mouth without trying that this explains so much. All of a sudden, I understood why so many communication problems happen because of different styles of communication. So, that was an unsought or not consciously sought epiphany. Uh, but there uh-huh. were many. In fact, the, some of the biggest ones in my life professionally were ones that I spent nine and ten years on. I don't know whether I should mention them now or let's go back. Let's back to you because I... I uh, we're talking about ones that we we were not consciously seeking. To, yeah. uh, can you look at your list and see if these next ones that you have are ones that were just given to you and then see, if, can you look at your list okay. and see? Okay. If I think about it, like most of these are the, the, the career ones I have left, I was kind of seeking all these things. Then go ahead. Let's, let, let, let's move into that. Yeah. The ones that we're seeking. Yeah. So, for example... I remember the day that I published my first video on YouTube mm-hmm. and 
realizing that Proko is going to be successful. Mm-hmm. I mean, I guess I was seeking that, right? Like, yeah. I wanted to make sure it's successful. Okay. But then it was like publishing it and getting the results, watching those numbers in that, on that first video just climb very quickly. I was like, okay, so the, the people want this. This is going to be good. You're doing the right thing. Yeah, I'm doing the right thing. Like this thing, like, because it took me, I don't know, six to nine months of working on that first video until I finally got the one I wanted to publish yeah. and just developing the brand. And so, it was a big buildup of, I don't know if this is going to work and then publish the video, really great response, oh. sudden realization, okay. What a good feeling. But I was seeking that, I guess, right? Yeah, <laughs> is that yeah. what you mean? Kind of. Let me, let, let me tell you my experience. I'll, I'll, I'll lump three of them together because they're interesting. Okay. For the fact that when I was in my late teens, I was seeking how is it that comic book artists and animators know how to draw out of their imagination so that you can do Jiminy Cricket jumping over on his hat and all of the other marvelous things that comic book artists and animators could do. What is it that you need to know to do that? And it took me 10 years of asking teachers and, and, and seeking, what is that? 10 years before I ever found out pretty much anything about it that I could understand. And the same thing happened with how do professional writers craft stories? Even though I was around a professional writer, he just didn't have, have any interest in telling me about the process. He was just not interested in that. So, did you ever have an epiphany with those things or was yes. it a slow buildup of knowledge where, okay, now I know how to craft the story? Yes. I had an epiphany. One, okay. the, the epiphany for drawing came after spending a week with Drew Struzan in 1985. And he demonstrated some things that I, I, it all makes sense. Robert Beverly Hale has a portion in one of his demos where he puts his charcoal stick on the back of a figure. The figure has its front toward us. He puts his charcoal stick on the back of them and traces the latissimus dorsi around the uh, torso. And it looks three-dimensional. And that was a moment of, whoa, wow, that's what it all makes. It all, it all made sense. So, it happened with drawing from Drew Struzan and Robert Beverly Hale. It happened with writing from Robert, uh, excuse me, for, uh, Robert McKee's seminar in 1987. There were several teachers who were uh, getting little glimpses of it, but I sought for 10 years, how do you find out, how, how do you get the knowledge of how do you actually craft a story? And when I found Robert McKee, I stopped looking because I found the mother load and just went back over and over and over to his seminar until I understood it all. And then also, how do actors and directors work where they have a script, but they actually make it come alive so that it is emotionally uh, uh, effective? And I sought that for 10 years and couldn't find anybody who'd give me an answer. And those I read the Stanislavski book, An Actor Prepares, and was reading what directors were saying, and it just none of it clicked. But when I went to Don Richardson at UCLA Extension, in one night, he gave that class more practical information uh, about how to do it. He was a television director for 35 years. It made so much sense that I just stopped looking and then spent four years with him about how a, he was not an actor. He was a director. 
But he understood timing and how an actor prepares and getting past all of the nonsense that you get in a lot of acting classes. It was, they were, they were just mother loads. So those were three things that in my late 20s started to come together and I consciously sought them frustrated for about a decade. And then boom, 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 you finally got what you were seeking out of individual teachers. I wonder if people today still have these same experiences where you go 10 years of trying to find an answer and not get it. <laughs> like, no, because now we shouldn't. have the Internet. That's right. That you should not have. <laughs> like, ten, like you how do you year. go 10 years without, you know, trying to seek out storytelling and not no. run into Robert McKee? Right. Like if I do that right now, do a search. How to storytelling. <laughs> How to craft a story, how to write a story. So, Skillshare, I got all a bunch of ads. Okay. Okay, Masterclass. Maybe this wasn't a good change one to makers. choose. No, hold on. Uh, I would probably go to Amazon. While Stan's looking, if you're interested in directing and acting for film and television and for stage, don't miss Don Richardson's Acting Without Agony. It is not as good as his actual classes were. But it's uh, it's very valuable. Robert McKee doesn't come up. You know why? On the first page. There, there's like 40 books on here and his is not one of them. It's because there's a million people teaching it now. Okay, so the problem still exists then. The problem still exists is that now instead of having a dearth of information, We've got a flood of information that we can drown in. And also, there are many other good teachers of story besides Robert McKee, but not the ones you're <laughs> thinking of. You do not go to Joseph Campbell to learn how to tell a story. You may go to Christopher Vogler to learn something about what he had to, to say, but even that, can, is, has been under a lot of criticism because of the formulaic quality of it. But there, there are many others. It's just that one was the, the one that in one book, you have 80 to 90 percent of everything you need to know about the components, the elements, and the principles of composing stories. I don't know of anyone who's done better, but I know of a few others who've done well. If people yeah. care about this, Stan, this is where yeah. I want to plug my recommendations of books because I've got okay. those resources <laughs> on my website to link to where they can purchase Robert Beverly Hale's best book, even though his videos, yeah. I think, are now on YouTube. Uh, the books on visual storytelling. Uh, mm. I, I've got links to those. So, you can't yeah, where, say- Where do they go? Martialart.com slash books. They go to, to martialart.com and then there's a tab called recommendations. Cool. And those recommendations take you to my recommendations. My recommendations for <laughs> these topics, perspective, yeah. anatomy, general drawing, yeah. uh, visual storytelling, yeah. uh, composition, etc. Okay, well, I, I, I've done several searches now and I still haven't found Robert McKee. So, th this kind of shows that this is a, still an ongoing problem. So, you could still ha go 10 years without making that discovery. Not if you're listening to people yeah. who you trust yeah, maybe not to point years. you in directions. Yeah. yeah, maybe not 10 years. But if you go on a forum or something, they'll... they'll... You know how I found Robert Beverly Hale? I found him no. because 
Drew Struzan said, if you just go to that that one book, that the guy with he has a woman's middle name, and I have <laughs> never <laughs> okay. Anyway, I knew I about the book, but I never read it. But I, there I am, 20, uh, 28 years old or so, 26, in my 20s. And then when I found the one book he was talking about was not some of the ones that have his name on it, That one of the ones that has his name on it that wasn't really his writing. It's Drawing Lessons from the Great Masters. That was an epiphany, and so was Master Class in Figure Drawing. But I've already mentioned this. Yeah. If, you, if, if people want those... If people want to know what our resources are, the, the things that really made a difference that were consciousness changing in how to draw and how to do some of these other professional disciplines, this is what a maven is supposed to do, to sort through all those resources. Yeah, I also have proco.com slash books for my favorite books. The topic we've been dealing with is that sometimes we are seeking epiphanies, that I want the answer to this. I know there's something missing. Who's going to give it to me and asking and asking and asking until somebody points. And then when we find it, we know we found it. 10 years of how do you draw out of imagination and not getting any answers yeah. that made sense. And then all of a sudden, this makes sense. The comic book way of drawing that I could not get from college classes made sense. The animator's way of drawing made sense. And what Robert McKee and Don Richardson were teaching made sense. They, when, when I went to that first night at UCLA with Don Richardson, I came back and told my friend who I'd been seeking this information with him for about 10 years. And I told him what I learned. And then when the next round came, he came with me to that opening night and we walked out to our car and got lost and walked around the entire UCLA campus and lost track of the fact that we got lost because seven or eight times my buddy Nigel said, well, this means that, well, this means that, and the thing that happened after this means that, that there is a way. There are ways that professionals work that are reliable, that you can do under pressure and that you can do with a crew of people and that you can do where you can rely on your decisions to, to make something come alive. It was absolutely an epiphany of all <laughs> of that preparing the ground for hunger for this yeah. particular food that solved it. So, those, that is a conscious seeking of knowledge. Yeah. I mean, I guess any really good book that you read on, or sorry, um, non-fiction book, probably. Not necessarily. Not necessarily. Well, maybe the books we talk about, all yeah, the yeah, educational yeah. books, the ones that are trying to teach us something, right? Any one of those that are really, really good um, are, will have a series of these epiphanies and you are seeking them because you're reading this book on how to do something. That's when you're reading non-fiction. But yeah. The unsought ones often come out of fiction. Yes. Or just life events. Yeah. Right. Fiction is a distilling of life events yeah. for emotion and meaning. Oh, the, uh, the, the novel that I've read probably more than any other single novel is uh, uh, Till We Have Faces. It was the last novel that C.S. Lewis wrote uh, and it was, it was his least popular novel. People didn't like it. 
He thought it was his best, but the main character, Oriwal, has a series of visions at the end that are just, they just, the book bowled me over. There was one day that I read the entire book, it was my third or fourth reading. I read the entire book in one day, and it's not a one day reading. I hurt my body. Uh, reading it in one day, but <laughs> where you're like your neck was like this the whole time, yeah, yeah, and just sitting so much, but I could not pull away from it because the arc of where she went. Uh, if you don't, if if you read the first two Is this pages, a spoiler alert. No, no. If you no, read okay. the first two pages of Till We Have Faces, the main character Olyewol, who is an old queen, says now that she's old and she has no children. And her life is uh, is going to end. The gods can't do anything to her. So, she's going to make her case against the gods, especially the god of the Grey Mountain, who she's got an issue with. And the whole book is her monologue about life. And if you don't, <laughs> if you do not like that first two pages, I can assure you, you will not like the book. So, that's Wait, one the novel. The whole book is a monologue? The whole book is her explaining what happened in her life from her childhood all oh, the way through okay. to becoming a queen. She's telling a story. Yeah. <laughs> okay, got She's it. She's telling her story, but it is. Uh, it was to me one of those ones that I keep going back to because it makes you think about your own perception of your life and how misguided it can be, uh, but that, that doesn't mean that it's uh, your misguidance doesn't mean that there's no hope. It just means that you are really misguided. It, it's a very, uh, it's got qualities that Raging Bull has have, uh, had that I've mentioned, that uh, it's an insight into life thing, but I was not seeking insight from it. I was just wanted to see if it was uh, getting involved in a good story. Would I have that happen with any good novel. Any good novel worth reading twice yeah. is because it's giving you some kind of epiphany by vicariously experiencing over a period of 8 to 12 hours uh, somebody else's story. Okay. I got one more really that I, I think is maybe worth talking about. I, I, get, I mean, I have another one that's just like realizing that sitting is bad for you. <laughs> oh, really? So, you had that epiphany that you, oh, your, bo yeah. your body told you that sitting was bad for you? Yeah, I just, I went years. So, I did karate as a teenager for, for like a decade. And so, I was always moving and I was very flexible. Um, you know, karate kept me very healthy. And I did it many, you know, three or four times a week. And then in high school, I decided, okay, I'm going to stop karate. I'm going to do art. I had to switch focus. I had to choose one because I didn't have time to be serious in either or in both. And that decision was very good, I think, in overall. I, I'm glad I chose to focus on art. But it also took a toll on my body yeah. because all of a sudden, I was sitting a lot. I mm. was on the computer or I was at my easel, usually uh, sitting. Um, sometimes I would stand, but, and then if I'm drawing, I'm sitting at my, my desk with the, the board. Anyway, anyway, I was mostly sitting most of the day and like seven, eight, ten years. I don't, I don't remember exactly how long into that. I just like, my body was totally different. I was very tight in the hips and core area because of, you know, my legs, be my hips being, uh, flex the whole time and my core was weak and so I just started having back issues 
And I was like, oh, like there, I, 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 it was uh, at a chiropractor. He just started asking me questions like, what do you do all day? And I was, I was explaining. I was like, uh, <laughs> okay. Yeah. Obviously, it all makes this sense. is the problem. It all makes sense. Okay. That, yeah. That's the, the body, the body speaking to the. Uh... Yeah. And I thought it was all because of these uh, injuries that I kept having throughout those times where I was just like, ah, oh, pull my back. And I was like, dang it. Uh, it happened again. And I just thought it was like unfortunate timing with something. But it was like, well, I was having these injuries because my body's getting weak and, and tight. Yeah. Not because I just like bent my body the wrong way. Um, but I didn't attribute it to sitting until many, many, many years later. But again, now that has become such common cultural knowledge that sitting yeah. is the new smoking. Yeah. That it should not be a, an epiphany that happens in yeah. the late 20s. It should be something earlier. Yeah, it should be. But, if, you know. I know. If you're not seeking it. If you're not seeking it, right. <laughs> from if a chiropractor. To this literally, I'm trying to figure out what's wrong with my body. <laughs> Going to a chiropractor. Um, but that's not the one I wanted to talk about. The, the okay. one is, um, it's actually about the Proko community. There was a, a, a moment when I realized, actually, this is like two, two different epiphanies, but um, there was a moment that I, I realized how big the Proko community was. Mm -hmm. You probably had this moment too at Lightbox. Mm -hmm. Walking through a light box, did everybody just like, oh, look, look at, look at that Marshall guy? <laughs> like, did you have that? I experienced stuff like that at the Comic Con before, but yes, at Lightbox, oh, that's it, right. It was a, it was a really aware that most, of, many of the people here have yeah. had known about because they're all going into the entertainment arts, and so yeah, th that there was that awareness. Yeah, it was like a little taste of what real celebrities go through yeah <laughs> right like i don't go through this on a daily basis like i'm not actually famous when i go when i walk around the grocery store nobody knows who i am Good and i'm so too. happy for this yeah. because <laughs> because you know walking around lightbox like it's so draining you are a public <laughs> figure yeah and and you just you can just see all the eyes turning as you walk yeah because they recognize you and but it, there was there was also good and i was like Wow, like there's a lot of people, like those numbers are actually real people, yeah. you know, like I'm usually behind the computer just seeing these numbers like, oh, cool, this video got a million views, but it's just a number. But then when you're actually there and you're like, okay, like these artists are ac actually watching my videos. Yeah. It's, there is, there is that moment of like, wow, what's going on? I've got one to end it with that is uh, epiphanies in museums are something I would mm. expect a lot of because museums are a ritual preparation. And I think ritual preparation is, is part of this. You're, you're traveling to the museum, you're going in there in a state of expectation. But out of the hundreds of times I've spent days in museums, there's been lots of longings to be better, adorations of artists, exaltations yeah. of uh, feeling so good about art, uh, and emotions mm. and bonding with people. That it wasn't this a great day. But I don't know that those are epiphanies. Yeah, I was about to say that. It, it seems like those are like epiphanies that you can't put into words. It's an emotional epiphany. I look yeah. at someone's art and I'm like, whoa, yeah. like I have this epiphany, but it's all just kind of like these feelings and visuals in my head. It's not something I can write down. Right. 
<laughs> some like, of them, some of them made their way from what I was looking at into sketchbooks where I did some drawings that I was, I was uh, happy with. But I don't think that those emotional experiences were epiphanies. But I had one epiphany that was both sought and ritualized, but it was also bigger than I expected. And it was in 1987 when I was not yet 30 years old. And I had an opportunity to go to Paris that had, it was a ticket that my brother had that had to be used by someone of the same last name. And I was not going to go because I really don't like to travel. I didn't really want to go to Paris. And a friend told me I was making a mistake that I ought to go. So on my friend's advice, I went and I figured I'll hang out at the Louvre. It's a famous museum. So I got onto a jet at the Orange County Airport in 1987, and this was when the Orange County Airport, just a few years previous, did not even have jets. It was just airplanes. And every building around that Orange County Airport had been built in just the previous few years. And then I got out near Paris in a dream world of sculpture and buildings that were centuries old. It was a very surreal experience and nobody to talk to. I was in Paris for one week. I didn't speak French, which I found was, was a disadvantage. And so the part of me that talks and talks and talks shut down. And I had Rodin's book uh, on art and artists. And I read that book during that week. And I went to his uh, museum, his backyard, and I hung out at the Louvre. I saw the Mona Lisa for about six seconds, and I didn't care to look more because it was like a block away behind bulletproof glass. <laughs> you didn't really see it. That's the problem. Yeah. It's like everybody goes to see the Mona Lisa to say that they saw the Mona Lisa. It's like you can look at it better in repro uh, reproductions. <laughs> okay. But I did have a mission. I was seeking at that age what art was about. And it was not a casual seeking. I was, I was really intense about it. I wanted to know. And I did not get as much out of Rodin's book as I wanted to. I, he was very big on craft. Oh, he was explicit about that. And he likened uh, art to religion. And uh, I learned some things from it. But the, uh, the Louvre, which was lit by natural light, which means on overcast days, it was terrible light was starting to not get as much out of the Louvre as I wanted. And there was a place that looked like it was called the Jai de Palme that I was seeking. It was some museum that would have a lot of impressionist stuff. I asked a security guard uh, about where is this. He said it didn't exist anymore and that now it's the Dorsey. Do you know anything about the Dorsey Museum? Uh-uh. D apostrophe O-R-S-A-Y in Paris. No, no, I didn't go there when I was in Paris. I was in Paris for like eight hours. Oh, Stan, the Dorsey is a great museum. It is a converted train station. Huh. Lit with glass everywhere above it. That's cool. Full of impressionist paintings. And when I found it, I never went anywhere else. What do, you, what do you mean you never went anywhere I, I spent three days, the three oh, remaining okay. days of my week in Paris Got at it. the Dorsey. And uh, I saw Impressionists galore. And there was a big Doré painting. I had never, I never knew Doré was a painter. I just knew the engravings. So it, that was a moment to ponder. Uh, and I fell in love with sculpture. So it all started happening at the Dorsey Museum. And they, uh, they had uh, Rodel. Uh, I don't need to tell you all about it. 
Now, here's what happened uh, toward the final, final two days there. I walked into a room that had Van Gogh's Church at Auvers, and it was the first thing that I saw. And for a moment, I had a flashback of what it was like to look at the world through the eyes of a small child, even smaller than a small child, through the eyes of a baby. The specific memory was being in the back of my parents' car while they were driving at night and seeing through the window what would have been neon lights and traffic lights and cars and signs and things like that. But when you're a pre-language baby, you don't know any of the names of those things. All you know is that there is a smear of lights and there is a livingness and motion to the world that looking at that picture of that church brought back the sensation vividly, but really short like less time that it takes to take in a full breath. But it was so vivid, and I was never a fan of Van Gogh's work, I didn't dislike it, but that was a moment where my eyes opened to what I would call the naive view, the ability to see the world the way a person might see it if they did not have labels for things. And when I came back from Paris and I told my family about it, I think it made them feel uncomfortable. Uh, <laughs> what? There was no drugs involved in this at all. Uh, I, might have, I was drinking coffee, Sounds I'm like sure. you're on drugs, though. It, it did. I think it did. There was a long pause and they changed the subject. But <laughs> You weirdo. <laughs> yeah. But it, to me, it was a pivotal point that there was more to perception than all of this conscious studying that I was doing which it did not invalidate the studying. It just gave me an awareness that great artists are great, not because of their craft, as important as that is. It's because they have something like a, a vision. And I mentioned Van Gogh because I've been rediscovering Van Gogh. That was 34, 35 years ago. I mentioned Van Gogh to a friend of mine. I asked him whether he liked him or not. He said, I respect Van Gogh, but you know, he doesn't, there's something, uh, something about it that bothers me. And then when I mentioned his trees, he said, oh yes, his trees, his trees. <laughs> I don't know how you can look at what he did with cypresses and then not look at a cypress and see it as a living entity. And one of the compliments he made about Van Gogh is one thing you can say for him, he was decisive. Yeah, Van Gogh had the audacity of a manic kid who will not be restrained by anything except what he wants to see. He was chasing a vision. And even if he never made any money from it or never made any money to speak of, he was just a burden because he wasn't famous. It did not stop him. He poured himself into something that was really, really exciting and extraordinary. And now his work takes my breath away as much as anything that I know of. So that was that was definitely an epiphany for me because it shifted a focus from the mechanics of art, the skills of art, the craft of art, to the fact that there must be a bigger thing that you care about, something that you're seeking to give. Cool. Where do we go from here?
Hey, there's one other thing I should say. Okay. I think that seeking epiphanies can backfire. I think that seeking an experience can make us self-conscious where the experience eludes us. It can take away from the magic of there being an epiphany because when you don't expect it and it happens, it's like a a shock and it... Yeah. It seems anticlimactic. Ray Bradbury called the muses or the muse shy. The muse likes to be acknowledged but not studied. And so, when we're really saying, I'm going to take this one week and devote myself to seeking and I'm going to have this big emotional experience, it may be counterproductive. But the, uh, do you, do you have any thought about that? I've just, I, I, my head just went to Christian, for example. Because he's on a, he's on a, a second cross country trip. Yeah, and I, I, I don't know how true this is. We'd have to ask him, but I, I think he mentioned something along the lines of like the sec, the second one is totally different. He's not having the same epiphany. He's <laughs> like yeah, the yeah. same like emotional discoveries as the first time around when he wasn't seeking them. Yeah, like the first time he went, he just wanted to go on a road trip and just like have fun. And this time, he's planned it out. He, he got a van. He built it up, he put a bed in there, he basically he prepared to go on this road trip and now he's probably expecting a lot and it... We'll, we'll see. I, I, I might we'll, be putting words in No, I, I like that you mentioned that. We'll see what comes of it. But you yeah. know, before that first trip, I told Christian that uh, you look, you're seeking insights and sometimes they don't come when you seek them. They come when you're no longer seeking them and chasing a first experience, trying to repeat a first experience is a yeah. classic mistake. Mm. It's called chasing the first high. Uh, it just it ends up <laughs> it ends up uh, hamstringing the ability for the the insight to get through. Hamstringing? Hamstringing. It's a, it's a terrible thing to mention, but it used to be that in war you had a sharp sword and you could just go by your enemy. If, if your enemy was on the field and they were still standing, you just slice off their hamstrings with one cut yeah. and they yeah. will never... I'm sorry to, to, to tell it. That's but a visual. There was another one, another term for it, Shanghai, but I don't know whether Shanghai is, is culturally inappropriate, but it means that you've got a project that you expect to happen and then it gets stopped altogether. I don't know what the best term is. But I think... My legs hurt, Marshall. Yeah, yeah. Sorry. Sorry to have mentioned it. Let's say aborted. That's an even worse one. (laughs) Come on. All all of these terms. What does that mean? What's abortion? Let's just go back to the Ray Bradbury one. Acknowledge the muse, but don't stare. Uh, And also, you know, books. Reading books regularly are just filled with all sorts of... That's why you read a book, is that you're taking somebody else's, hey, here's what I know about the world. Let me share it with you. And you can pick up a dozen small ones or some big ones through a book. And it's a small ritual. It's not like you got the whole week around it. You've got, I'm going to sit down for an hour or two at a time. Oh, you can get stood up. Stood up. You're expecting this encounter with the epiphany. Yeah, you want to go on a date and the epiphany doesn't show up. The epiphany says, it's, he, it, this, <laughs> this one's expecting too much from me. Yeah. I'm not going to disappoint him by being there and, and poofing out. I'm going to be there. I'm just going to not show up and let him know. Yeah. Come here with a better attitude. It's like that scene from You've Got Mail 
I don't. Where? I haven't seen it yet. I've got it what? in my queue. I haven't seen what? it yet. What? God. I will. You haven't seen You've Got Mail? I'm sorry. I'm catching up it's like, on well, romantic It's like a classic. Comedy. I'm catching up uh, on these stories. Sorry. Okay. Okay. Well, Stan, next time I see you, it'll be, uh, it'll be in person. It'll be in person. It'll be right there in that corner. Can you swivel the camera to show? No. It's on a tripod and it, it, yeah. th- there's, a, there's a big TV right behind it. So, if I swivel it, it'll just point to the TV. I got gotcha. you. Anyway. Cool, Marshall. Thank you. Thank you. I had fun talking about epiphanies. Yeah. Hope it was useful. Yeah. At least it was fun. I enjoyed it. 